messages to help you on your way to God. We have talked about our values and another value that we are going to be looking at today is is really more of a practical, you know, what if I value, if I truly value something, what might it look like? Believe it or not, we have so much we can be doing right now and living out the Christian call. Our shelter and stay is not a vacation from moral problems. It's not a vacation from temptation. It's not a vacation from any of these things. If anything, we've, we've figured out that life can be a bit harder right now. Life can be a bit harsher right now. I uh, was at the um, oil change place yesterday. And that was really on the heart of one of the technicians. Just, how are you doing? How are you surviving? And, and there's so many layoffs. And they were just thankful that at their particular location, no one had any layoffs. They had reduced hours, but, but layoffs, not, not yet. But that's not true for most places. I know lots of people that are being laid off and large companies are laying off entire departments and all of these plans to figure out a way to survive financially and how it ends up affecting everyone. And it's usually during crisis that we begin to see the cracks and, and um, sort of the weak points in our values, what we really believe in, what we really value, what we really cherish. It's during crisis where we might reveal that, you know, um, might not go to church for a while. The odd thing is we want to get closer to God but we break away from his family that he's created. Sometimes in a crisis, we, we internalize and we isolate. And here we're being forced to isolate and, and there's no real way out of it unless we want to deal with fines or whatever might be coming. And yet there's temptations to get angry, and bitter, frustrated, Maybe one of those uh, choice words come out of our mouth that circumstances, perhaps they don't. Maybe, maybe we begin to shave the truth a little bit with some lies. Not because we're trying to be evil or quote unquote wicked, but maybe we don't want to say exactly what's on our hearts. And sometimes it's really during crisis where we feel we're isolated even from God. I can't tell you how much comfort I, I always get from the suffering servant psalm of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we did a series on the Psalms here at Highland, it was really a powerful, a powerful thing for me to see how from Psalm 19 all the way to 23, there is this really interwoven story 
of emotion. 19, a story of wonder and amazement and how God, who created everything and the creation heralds out a, a song or a, a sermon of his presence and control of the universe. And 20 and 21 begin to talk about a king who trusts God and how God answers his prayers and God is involved and he is full and total confidence that God will do the things that this king needs. Only to find out in Psalm 22 that he is going to suffer and it's going to feel like he's alone. Isolated. Hurting. And in a very real prophetic sense, it is talking about what Jesus will also go through on the cross. Isolated. Isolated from his family. Isolated from his friends. Isolated from his disciples. Isolated from the life he had just a few hours before. There was no turning back. And the same was true for Psalm 22. The sense that I am alone. Why have you forsaken me? The sense that where is your presence, dear Lord, in all of this? But then you get to the middle of Psalm 22. Right at the edge of life where we often experience that sense of I can't go any further. And it's at that breaking point moment that the psalm changes. That the psalm goes from this lament to this really powerful praise that God has delivered him from the mouth of the lions. That God is ever present. That though we go through hardships and feel alone, that is not the truth or the reality of existence. God cannot always give us a comfort blanket when we go through hardship. Sometimes we just have to go through it. But there it is in Psalm 22. He's delivered from, on all accounts, was his death, was mockery, was shame. The great king brought low. No longer the beloved, protected king. But now, delivered through the success of his enemies, he can now lift up the name of God and praise among his brothers and sisters. The New Testament completely connects all of these points to Jesus. 
all of these are prophetic of the Messiah who would come after David. The anointed one, the Christ. The Christ par excellence, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. But then we know how the story goes. Today I want to talk to you about the presence of God and the presence of God as we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. David once said in Psalm 51, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, renew in me, you know, restore me, renew within me, make me right. And part of that is to make sure that even though we can't see God, we can't see his silhouette like a ghost. We can't see his hand like a good friend. But instead, it's an understanding of faith that says that God is not far from us. And too many times we're so focused on the pebble in our shoe, stubbing our toes and the pain that we forget that he's the one we're leaning on when we're trying to get that pebble out of our shoe. But today I wanna to talk about the value. If I believe this, if I value my relationship with God, if I value the spirit, what can I do? How does this affect me? How does this impact my life? Look at the Bible and you see uh, the word spirit. The first time we see spirit is in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. After you see the, the narrative opening up in creation and how we see God created the heavens and the earth, you know, in the beginning, God created everything, the heavens and the earth. And then we see in verse two how the spirit hovered over the deep. How the spirit hovered. That's an interesting word because spirit, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, have a, a wordplay built into the word. In some situations, it is a reference to wind that uh, unseeable moving force that makes the trees sway, that makes the branches bounce, that makes your hair flow, that makes your, your arm go up and down when you put your arm out and you're driving and you can feel the wind, that sense of movement and substance even though you see nothing but you see it moving and doing, impacting people. And then that becomes a, an apt human metaphor for the presence of God, the wind. You can't see it, but it moves all around you. One of my favorite is Twin Peaks. And I love Twin Peaks so much because it gives me a, a 
sort of uh, tap into my, my roots there in, in the city. But one of the, my favorite things is just to go up there and feel the wind wrap around me. Just to feel just the, the pressure and flow of nature, the wind. And I, I imagine then that the force of God is ever engrossing like that. It wraps us up. And so for the Spirit of God then to hover over creation, over the deep, is a reminder that God's presence is ever connected to creation. God did not create a universe and stayed away in this separate. He may not be the creation, as in you know, the pantheistic point of view where God is nature, you know, sort of Jim Carrey thinking. Everything is God. You're God. I'm God. It's God. The rock is God. We're all God. But God is ever present in creation, both in creating and in sustaining the creation. He's involved. He's always involved. And this is an important point because not only do we see God hovering over the, the creation, not only do we see this, this powerful force involved in the world, but we also see that he embedded the Ruach, the spirit in all living things. It's amazing to me how wind is the metaphor for the unseeable, invisible movement of God, and yet it is wind and air that we breathe to live. Ever stop to think about that? We inhale the metaphor of who God is, the spirit the wind, the breath. That means he's ever close to us. I think in a very real sense then, Paul is talking in Acts 17 by, by inspiration. For in, in him we live and breathe and have our very being. He is not far from either one of us. And in, in that, for that reason then, we have the powerful truth about worship when we worship God, we must remember a simple truth. Jesus told the Samaritan woman as they're contemplating his identity and, and, and her life and her interest in knowing where to worship and the location of worship. Where is the proper location of worship? And, and Jesus said, neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans, and in Jerusalem, where the Orthodox Jews would worship in the temple, neither in these places will you worship. Why? Because God is spirit, and those that, God, those that will worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. And it is that binding, intimate relationship of spirit that is fundamental to our relationship with him. 
that our spirit connects to his spirit through the spirit that made us. We are interwoven with God, which makes me argue the case that every single human being and animal has a relationship with God. Some are closer to him than others. But we all have a relationship with God. He is hovering around creation. He sees the deep. He sees the chaos. He sees the order of what he's made. He sees life unfold. For that very reason, when we talk about the Christian experience of from a non-Christian to a Christian, from a follow, from a non-follower of Jesus to a disciple of Jesus, Jesus himself says, those who are flesh are flesh, but those who are spirit are born of the spirit. John 3, 6. And if you're born of the spirit, you see like with the wind, how it blows, John 3, 8. You don't know where it comes from. You don't see its origin, but you see its effects. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. So if I value the Spirit of God, then I value the fact that He is ever-present in this world and in my life, and I need to take a closer look at reality and realize that he is just not too far from me. He's not too far from you. You are not alone. He is there with you. The second thing I wanna point out is, or at least encourage you to think about today, is that God did not separate from creation so much and he's not detached. In fact, what God has done, what spirit has done, is put on flesh. When you think about the story of Jesus, and if you dig deeper into the story, besides, I know the Bible talks about Jesus, I know Jesus died on the cross, the sort of you know high points, that most people have a general idea of what the Bible talks about. But when you look at the story of Jesus, we're actually told in John chapter one, in the gospel account that is probably the, the last of the four. We, we read how in John 1, the apostle says, let me tell you the story of Genesis 1, but in a way you've never heard before. You know what he does? He quotes it. And then he, he riffs on it. He, he brings a variation to it. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then we begin to learn about this word, this logos, and how the word is, is the source of life and everything that has ever been made was made by him. But the interesting thing about it is that creator word, that creator logos, 
in verse 14 is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. The spirit, the ruach, the pneuma, the wind, the, the spirit of God in Jesus shows us that God has entered into our world. He has entered into his creation, located and focused in the person of Jesus Christ. Look it up, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And John is saying, we saw, we saw the glory that comes from God and we saw it in him. Because he is God. If I value the presence of the Spirit, then I have to appreciate that God went from the Spirit realm where we can't see and perceive and has entered into our experience. C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus entered, into, entered in, uh, behind enemy lines. He became one of us. And in doing that, God, the Spirit of God in Jesus made it an most important point to say, I am not far away. In a real sense, the word Emmanuel, God with us, as it is connected to Jesus, is as legitimate a historical event as the New Testament teaches. That God literally was among us and with us, both to condemn sin, but also to bring forth relationship with him. It's an oddity that one of the, the worldviews that would ultimately uh, drastically challenge early Christianity would be an early form of uh, this um, dualistic worldview called Gnosticism. In fact, uh, Docetism. And this whole idea comes from this, this worldview where it was anchored in this you know, polarizing view that all nature, all material is evil, wrong, bad, and all spirit is good. And so God could never be really connected to creation because matter is evil. And that began to infect not just Christianity, but it, be, it was a worldview that pull, put its fingers in a lot of different groups. And then we see in the Gospel of John a, a rebuke of that. But in 1 John, we see how the Apostle John likewise shows that you cannot deny that Jesus came of what God has done in this world to redeem man. Jesus, God, came in the flesh to redeem us. You reject his humanity. You reject the work of God. If I value the spirit of God, what God did to enter into our world through the flesh and body of Jesus Christ to bring about salvation, I'm be thankful because he showed me that humanity is not inherently evil. 
The Bible does not support the notion of Calvinism, that we're totally depraved, the notion of original sin, that we're just bound to bear the guilt and shame of Adam's sin rather than bear our own. The Bible does teach that the clear and present that we have human free will and that humans often choose sin rather than God's plan. But we were not made inherently evil. We're made in God's image. We're made in the image of the spirit. If I value the spirit of God, I'm going to value what the spirit of God does. And he bound himself to our existence in the presence of the Logos, the word Jesus in flesh, to be with us, to, to carry out God's plan. Redemption is important to the spirit of God. And finally, I just want to close with this. Jesus demonstrates that God's spirit dwells with us and the work of the cross and the work of what God has done through Jesus is that now the spirit of God dwells in all of us. You know, this is an important point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when discussing certain moral choices and sins, one of the things that Paul encourages the Christians there to remember is that our body is the temple of the Spirit of God, that it dwells with us, dwells in you, Christian. And that, that tells me something pretty powerful. Because if I take the, the vantage point, if, if I can understand it correctly here, of a first century Jew accustomed to the Jewish temple where the spirit of God was supposed to dwell. For him then to move the location of the spirit of God that dwelt in the temple to now place it in the life of the Christian, that tells me that God is always with me. I don't have to go to a temple. I don't have to go to a location to dwell with, with God for God dwells with me. It's a choice that God has made to abide with his people. And that's not the only place. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul is trying to encourage the Ephesian Christians to, to maintain their hope and, and to keep their zeal because of their in Christ relationship where they have forgiveness of sins, he goes on and says, the spirit has been given to Christians as a down payment for the inheritance to come. It is proof that God is coming because his spirit is with us to help us anticipate his coming. And then finally in Romans chapter eight, verses 12 to 17, a, a precious passage about our intimate relationship. It is the spirit that bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And because of that, through the spirit, we're able to cry out this most intimate expression about our relationship with God, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. We have an intimate relationship with God. And Jesus' work has 
finalize that as we wait for his second coming. This morning, I'm leaving you with three points and I hope I've pressed them well enough to encourage you to think deeply about your relationship with God. The first one I want to remind you of is that God created the world and his spirit abides in creation, hovered over the waters, and he has not left us, which is to say that everything is fundamentally spiritual. There's something spiritual in everyday life. And number two, remember that God put on flesh, spirit put on flesh to bring about salvation and the hope and promises that we have as Christians. And finally, that the spirit dwells with us as Christians in a way that would be consistent with the way God identified himself with Israel. We have that intimate abiding presence with God now. So whether, whether we get out of this or not, you know, this shelter in, in place and what, whatever happens next, God is still with us. Please be encouraged by that. Please dwell on that this week. Pray about it.